1: This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice.
2: Everyone always talks about debt recycling online, in casual conversations, at dinner parties, at funerals, at christenings, at Christmas dinners. Everyone's just talking about it. Am I right? Well, probably not. But today, I've got Paul Benson. He's a financial advisor. He's the host of a podcast called Financial Autonomy. And he's written a book also by the same name, Financial Autonomy. He's been on the show before. We're just talking all things debt recycling. We're just answering your questions and using that stuff uh, as fodder. It's a great chat. You're going to be really encouraged with your financial strategy around your investing and whatnot. However, before we get into that, remember a couple of things, Retire Right, the podcast for those over 55, over 50, anyone who might be 10 years out of, quote unquote, wanting to retire, no, 55 isn't old anymore, but some people are just done with working and want to be done by 60 anyway. Uh, So that podcast is for you, Retire Right. And if you are also fropping on podcasts, we've got a new short form podcast exclusive to Spotify. Spotify. There's no cost to listen to it. It's called My Millennial Daily. Let's get into debt recycling. I'm Glenn James, and you're listening to My Millennial Money. Paul's a friend of the podcast. I'd like to think he's a friend of mine. Paul, welcome back to the podcast. Absolutely, Glenn. Thank you very much for uh, having me on. It's great to be back with uh, My Millennial Money. So I'm interviewing you today with your hat on as a financial advisor. Mm -hmm. So, forget your wishy-washy podcasting lingo (laughs) and terms and all that stuff. We want the goods. So, just paint the picture for us. How long have you been a financial advisor? What type of clients do you like working with? And yeah, just a little bit about your professional history. Yeah, sure. Uh,
0: Financial planner for about 20 years. Uh, Started off working for a bank Uh, Well, I was working for a bank even before I was a financial planner, but then got into financial planning whilst working for a bank. Did that uh, for seven years and left in 2006, started my own business and have been going since then.
2: Yeah. Awesome. And what type of clients do you mainly work with in your business? Predominantly sort of Gen X, uh, but you know, a few
0: people younger as well. Mm, But certainly Gen X is probably our sweet spot, I'd say. Yeah.
2: Awesome. And Gen X, the age... You know, we're probably talking now, what, 42 up to 58, 60. Yeah, I'm not sure the exact, yeah, but you'd be
0: in the mark, yeah, in that in that range. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a pretty good spot for us because, you know, at that point there's a bit of complexity and, you know, people are sort of somewhere near the peak of their
2: careers and, and, yeah, we tend to be able to add a bit of value at that point. Yeah, awesome. Okay, Jade Luna asks, what is debt recycling? So that's a really good way for us to set the scene not make any assumptions, be presumptuous, any of that stuff. Uh, so, Paul, if I said to you, hey, mate, what is debt recycling? Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely essential. That's where we've got to start because actually
0: the term debt recycling is not that obvious if you haven't come across it before. You know, So what are we talking here? The recycling element, it's referring to trying to substitute debt that you have at the moment that is not tax deductible and instead making that debt tax deductible. That's, the, that's what the recycling element is. So it's converting debt, if you like, into tax deductible debt. The, I guess the way that you go about that, so it, it generally presupposes that you have a home loan, you own a home, you have some equity, and you have a home loan. And so that debt is not, uh, not tax deductible, of course. Um, and so the strategy typically is that you access some of the equity in your home, uh, get a, a dedicated investment loan. And then the investments that you so, so having obtained those funds against your home, you then go and use that to typically buy some shares or ETFs or you know something share related typically, uh, and then the income off those investments, rather than pay off the loan that was used to purchase them, is instead paid off your home loan, the non deductible debt. Um, typically the loan for the the investment would be interest only so um, you know imagine a scenario you borrow a couple hundred thousand perhaps you buy some shares that loan just sits there at two hundred thousand you pay the interest but that's it and any kind of surplus income that you can you know from the investments let's say um, you, you're pumping onto your home loan so that the non-deductible home loan is getting repaid quicker it's accelerating the, the repayment of that debt
2: so yeah so that, that that's broad brush that's what you're doing Now, with this whole debt recycling thing, like it's funny, there's, I don't think in the, um, I don't know, financial planning 101 book, like the strategy is a hard name of debt recycling. It's kind of just the loose street talk, right? Because Mm -hmm. that's effectively part of the strategy because you, you can technically debt recycle without equities. Like you might have an investment property. Yes. And you just get the rent from the investment property and pay that down on your home mortgage. And if you've used your home mortgage to secure the investment property. Yeah, absolutely, you could. Yeah, it doesn't have to be shares. I guess it's
0: just from a cash flow perspective. Normally, um, well, certainly if you're negative geared against the property, then there's no surplus cash flow to put towards the home loan. Uh, yeah, just... I can just tell you from practical experience that generally people are doing it with shares. I think it's also just around scale. Like if you've got a... An investment property, it's it's going to be a big loan typically, mm-hmm. um, and therefore, you know, typically you need all the rental income just to service that loan. Whereas you could do debt recycling into equities for you know a hundred thousand is not uncommon, two hundred thousand, you know, somewhere around that mark is generally what we see people do. So it's yeah. not such a big amount. Often people can just pay the interest just out of their normal savings capacity, and so therefore, as they get. You know, dividends in or distributions in, um, they find it relatively simple to just nominate, all right, well, here's the bank account for perhaps my, the offset account on of my home loan as, in, as an example, and just have that as the, the, uh, the payment point for all dividends. Um, so it's a reasonably yeah.
2: effortless and automatic kind of thing. Sure. Well, let's jump right into the next question. Mm. Mitch Golding, debt recycle with uh, principal place of residence or investment property, interest only, Or principal and interest. He says, we have an investment property with next to no equity plus our PPOR with 100K of equity. Is it a fair comment to say if you're rent vesting and you invest in rental properties and you rent yourself so you don't have your own home or home loan, if you are using that property, if there is equity in the investment property and you want to borrow against that to buy shares, you're technically just doing a gearing strategy because all the debt's deductible anyway thank you
0: you're exactly right glenn yeah yeah it's i mean it's the whole idea of debt recycling as we touched on is is getting down debt that is not currently tax deductible. Now, if it's an investment property, it's already tax deductible. So, so the concept just doesn't apply if you're talking about an investment property. Yeah. So, absolutely spot on. So, yeah, in answer to Mitch's question, if you're to do it at all, um, you're to do it on uh, your principal place of residence. Now- you know, I'm sure. Obviously, you've got all the normal kind of general advice type disclaimers, Glenn. But you know, clearly for Mitch and, and the other people listening, you know, it depends what else he's got going on and the stability of his income and his income protection insurance and all sorts of other bits and pieces. So just to put that normal kind of caveat around. But yeah, principal place of residence is the one you're going to do it on because that's the non deductible debt at the current time. Um, interest only, principal and interest. Yeah, well, as touched on, normally on the investment piece, you would try and go interest only. Now the banks sometimes don't love that or they charge you a, a premium interest rate to do that. So you just kind of need to check your numbers. It could be the case that actually going like a 30-year principal and interest gets you a better result because maybe the bank gives you a lower interest rate um, mm. compared to the interest only. But if you could get the, an identical interest rate, then you'd rather interest only because that just enables more cash flow to go towards that, that non-deductible Uh, debt. And I guess in, in Mitch's case also, he's, he's kind of answered the question for himself because he's, he's pointed out that on the investment property, he doesn't have any equity anyhow. So, um, you know, to, to use this strategy, you really need to have some equity available that you could obtain a new loan for. So, um, yeah, I think.
2: Yeah. And I think in terms of this equity, uh, you know, if for example, he says he's got a hundred K plus, so just for, you know, simplicity. If there was 100K of equity, the usable equity might only be 80,000 because a bank or lender, particularly like you're not going to refinance and do a, a mortgage split to do this strategy and pay 15 grand LMI for the privilege. Like, I would imagine that's a non starter. So you've really got to look at that usable equity. Yeah, excellent point. I mean, and yeah,
0: I mean, I made that assumption, but that's great that you, you picked that up. Yeah, I mean, when we're talking about what's available, yeah, I mean, you really want to be thinking about, well, okay, my property values. I don't know. Say a million dollars. Well, well, my total debt that I really want to have on that is a maximum of eight hundred thousand. Eighty percent. You go over that, yeah. Then you've got to pay lenders' mortgage insurance, which is likely to make it uneconomical. So, yeah, when you're looking at how much headroom you've got, certainly eighty percent is typically your cap against the the value of the property. Pro- probably something else just to to touch on there that I think. Debt recycling is definitely a legitimate strategy, something that we, we've, we've done with clients and, and continue to do with clients, but sometimes it can be a little bit um, overhyped. And and what gets missed at times is the fact that the interest rate that banks charge, I touched on the fact that often if you go interest only, they put a bit of a premium on the interest rate. But it's also the case that they often put a bit of a premium on investment loans versus um, loans for your, for your primary residence. So you've just got to keep a bit of an eye on that because- you know, we're trying to, to recycle, trying to get debt to be tax deductible, which makes the cost of that debt cheaper. But, of course, if there's a significant difference in the interest rate, that might offset it anyhow. so you know you could imagine if you could get if your home loan was at five percent, but the investment loan was at seven, and look that's probably pretty extreme. but just just for, for, to illustrate, well, even if you get the seven percent tax deductible, it's probably not going to end up that different to the five percent in the home loan so y- you've really got to sort of check your numbers and just I guess you're just trying to minimize that difference now I mean, I do hear of people you know, fudge it or they don't tell the bank the whole story and maybe they, they get it as a home loan or something anyway. But certainly that interest rate differential is a really, for anyone sort of thinking about this strategy, really check your numbers on that because sometimes the strategy actually, if the interest rate's too much higher on the investment, it completely negates the whole point of the strategy.
2: Yeah. And I must confess, like neither of us are mortgage brokers, uh, but And I'm not licensed to do anything other than give general financial advice. But I'm hypothesizing just from my own experience and my own experience talking with other um, mortgage brokers, if you had a property worth a million dollars and there was a $500,000 loan on that property, Mm -hmm. you could have up to $300,000 of usable equity, right? To take us to the 800K. Yep you may be able to and this probably goes back to the 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 policies of what bank or lender that you're with right you could theoretically say to the bank hey i want to do a cash out of $300,000 as a separate mortgage to buy an Aston Martin DB9 or DB11 you know probably an 11 a current one some banks or lenders they really don't care and i'm just Loosely paraphrasing my experience talking with some mortgage brokers, as long as you're under that LVR threshold, there could be an element of they don't really care. So, what I guess I'm getting at is, you could go to your mortgage broker, or even say, we've got a five hundred thousand dollar debt. The property's worth a million. Let's just do a hundred thousand dollar cash out for a holiday, for example. Set up that separate mortgage as one hundred thousand dollars. And then invest that. Like, I guess I'm getting at the ATO and the tax ruling. They don't care what interest rate you're paying, and they don't care if you've said to the bank, "Oh, we're getting a holiday," and then you've just used that to invest. So, I, I, it's it's sloppy and it sounds weird and it it sounds like the Wild West. But I just want to illustrate the ATO don't care if you use a hundred percent of that hundred thousand dollars split or the three hundred thousand dollars split for investing, you can claim the interest paid. Excellent. So a couple of points there. I think,
0: yeah, so dead on, right? ATO don't care. All all they want to see is just a a, a nexus, a link between, okay, these borrowed funds were used to do what? Okay, they were used to purchase those investments, right? Well, then that makes the debt tax deductible. As to what you told the bank the purpose was, that's never going to come into, never going to show up anywhere. But an an excellent point that you, you you touched on there is that it does need to be a distinct loan. So just for the listeners, if you're thinking about debt recycling, don't think, oh, well, I've got, you know, 100 grand available on my redraw. I'll do that. That won't work, mm. right? Yeah. The loan needs to be distinct because it needs to be, because it's tax deductible, whereas your existing home loan is not. And you don't want, in any event, to be a mixed scenario, okay? The loan, you either want 100% tax deductible or not tax deductible at all. So yeah, just, I think that's probably worth flagging as well.
2: And just following on from my point and (laughs) loud and clear, I'm not a mortgage broker, but like that split that you get for the car or the $100,000 holiday or whatnot, more times than not, that would be kept at the same rate as your home loan. They wouldn't necessarily say, we're putting that under, because you've told the bank what the purpose is, If you tell the bank the purpose is investment, they might put it under the investment rate. So, I I don't know. I just chat with your mortgage broker and this is just, yeah, I I don't know. Is that too wild to say? But you might be able to borrow that money if you do have the equity under home loan rates. Now, if you want to be dishonest with the bank or you might be avoiding their policies anyway, I'll say that loud and clear. So, there's always fine print. But my motherhood statement is most of the time from my experience, if you're under that 80% LVR, the banks might not care too much what the money is being used for unless, and this is the kind of caveat, if you do need to consider the income of what you're borrowing to service that extra money, then they'll say, oh, so how are you servicing that? You're like, well, we're getting 25 grand rental income or we're getting 25 grand um, share income. So that will help service it. So I think, yeah, that's why you just need a good broker in your corner. Yeah.
0: No, I think that's that's, that's a fair observation. Hey, probably just something else to, that might be worth floating in at, at, at that point too, because you touched on the servicing and, you know, the investment servicing the loan. Yeah. As I say, typically, you know, people do this with, with shares, ETFs, some, some sort of equity-based investment is what they use worth, therefore, reflecting on the fact that your loan repayments are probably going to be monthly, maybe fortnightly, but probably monthly. But your income is very lumpy. I guess that's a key distinction relative to an investment property. Mm. So some ETFs do quarterly distributions, but most do six monthly. And if if they do do quarterly, they're even more lumpy because some quarters is just almost nothing has come through. Um, Yeah. So you do need to kind of like the ideal application i suppose would be where just from your normal cash flow and your normal savings capacity you can cover this investment loan repayments so and then and that's often what we would see a client would come to us and they say right i've got a savings capacity of $2000 a month how can i best put that to use and if we can determine all right well there's a good amount of equity there how about we use that 2000 a month we'll, we'll do some borrowing the 2000 a month will pay the, the loan and then the investment income, assuming they've got a home loan, the investment income will just direct straight to the home loan. Um, so, you know, you don't want to be relying on the investment income in this scenario to service the loan
2: because mm. it's it's too lumpy and too unreliable. And I think that's a very eloquent way uh, to get to my point about if you've got equity and you can borrow up to the 80%, with your current income servicing that and not needing external sources to service that extra Precisely, lending, yeah. it will make the whole process easier. Yep. Spot on. Spot on. Yep. So the next question from Nick Buttigieg, and this is a cool one, how much equity do you recommend to have before debt recycling? I think we
0: touched on that really. I mean, 80% is the key thing
2: to think about. Mm. Well, it's so funny for like, and this is why I love getting different personalities. if we read um, questions different, right? Like, sure, eighty percent awesome, but if we go to a dollar amount, like practically, uh, you wouldn't normally do it for less than a hundred thousand. Yeah, and that's kind of the the trade off with the the effort, exactly. the time, yeah, the energy, the actual return. Like, if you're going to do something, like absolutely do it, and. You know, back to that million dollar scenario and you might have three hundred thousand dollar usable equity that you can use and you can service off your existing income. Doesn't mean you have to borrow at all. Like mm. maybe do a hundred thousand if you're just unsure or so it's not all this all or nothing stuff, is it? Yeah, I think that's good and and you know it gives you a bit of
0: a bit of room too, who knows, life might change and you want a bit of flexibility, something up your sleeve. And I guess, especially, you know, we're in an environment where interest rates are on the rise. Um, and so, yeah, you definitely want to be leaving a bit of a bit of margin there for that as well.
2: Mm. And Nick's follow-up question, how does rising slash falling interest rates affect the debt recycling strategy? Is it better if interest rates are higher or lower?
0: That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I guess the higher interest rate means a bigger tax deduction, so to some extent debt recycling as a strategy becomes more attractive in a higher interest rate world um you know there's there's less of a saving to be had when interest rates were at two percent wasn't there so mm. so the strategies may be more appealing, but nevertheless, overall, you and me, glenn, if we've got debt we'd all we'd all rather the interest rate be lower, right It's just mm. that I guess. Mm yeah, maybe it makes the strategy come into play a little more in a higher interest rate environment.
2: But I think it's it's one of those things, and you touched on it before around like how much to use, like we've just recently done an episode. I did it with Azaria Bell and I, and we reviewed the book, The Psychology of Money, and it's a great read. If Have you read it? I haven't actually. <laughs> no, I know I seriously, should. Yeah, Morgan Housel, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Read it more just from a, Like, because I'm the same, like, I don't want to read every personal finance book under the sun, but like, it was just really good um, just the way he articulated things and more on the psychology side. Mm. And one big takeaway was not living on the edge and having that margin of error. So, with your projections and your forecasting, you know, if what today your mortgage interest rate might be 5.2%. With the recent increases, right? Mm-hmm. Ordinarily, long-term dividend yield for equity stocks that uh you know produce a high dividend, what could be five or six percent. So we know there could be a shortfall. I don't know. Like, I I just would encourage everyone not to max out everything and run on the line. Absolutely, have room for error. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And
0: and I think. Yeah, I mean, if we're doing a strategy for a client, you know, we'd normally stress test it assuming interest rates are 2% higher than they are today. Um, mm. And, you know, sometimes if we're doing different scenario analysis, you might do a few different interest, you know, return assumptions to sort of test, well, we, we guess that the total return might be seven or eight or something, but what happens if it's only four? Does it still work? That sort of stuff. So, yeah, no, you're dead on. Let's, let's be conservative, especially. When you're gearing to invest, it's a higher risk strategy. Um, mm. You know, regardless of what happens to the investment, the bank still wants their money back, and you're going to have to cough it up. So, yeah, uh, it's a higher risk. It's a it's an aggressive strategy. It's intended to be a long term strategy, whether it's shares or or, or property. Um, if you're borrowing to invest, it's a long term strategy. So, um, f- for those reasons alone, it, it certainly makes sense to to be appropriately cautious. You know, and just make sure that look, we've got a bit of margin here. As I say, things like making sure you've got income protection. Um, Mm. It's helpful, I guess, to some extent. If there's a couple and there's two different incomes, then you're a bit more resilient than if you're a a single person. Not to say Mm. you can't do debt recycling as a single person, but, you know, it's just those sort of things you want to be thinking through. Just, yeah, how you could deal with sort of adverse conditions. And, and, you know, it looks like interest rates have probably got about 1% to go from here, but no one really knows. So Mm. what if they went a bit higher than that? what if... What if they stayed there for an extended period of time?
2: You you said the G word, uh, which is an awesome word, and that word is Glen. No, joking. It's like <laughs> gearing, right? Yes. So, I think we need to be loud and clear, and it goes into some of these questions like, what do you invest in? I think you need to really be clear, like all investing with debt is gearing, but is this strategy a gearing strategy where we borrow money that we can afford to service with our own income and we put that in high growth stocks, we put it in spec ears and we go to town, baby, because we want the capital of that investment to explode. Or is it around that debt recycling where we put that money into equities that yield higher than normal growth stocks to cash flow and recycle the debt? So, you need to be very clear on what your intentions are when you borrow to invest. That's Yeah, that's a great observation, Glenn.
0: I like it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, how would you think through that? I guess, well, actually, the starting point I think on that is to, rather than at the outset say, my objective is to debt recycle, I would suggest you're taking a step back and you're saying, right, my objective is to, to build wealth. And it's suitable for me. I'm in a position where gearing is something that's you know, on the table. I've got equity. Mm. I've got reliable mm. income. I've got a savings mm. capacity. I, I can withstand a few bumps, and I can invest for the long term. So, so you're in a position. Okay, I want to build wealth. Gearing makes sense to me. I'm going to do a gearing strategy, and then it might be, okay. Well, let's. If if I orient this a particular way, I can do this in such a way
2: that it achieves debt recycling. Like that's. Mm. I think that's the the, the sequence of events. Yeah, but that's like almost financial planning one-on-one, isn't it? Like you work backwards. What are our goals? Yeah, okay, but, we but, want to build worth for long term. But
0: you get queries; you will have seen them as well, where people mm.
2: start with, "Oh, I've heard this debt
0: recycling is really awesome," mm. and and, and mm. they're starting from the point of debt recycling. And 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 I think really, actually, that's a little bit down the line. And so then yeah. that answers your question as to, okay, we've borrowed this this money off the bank for investment purposes. Mm. What are we trying to do here? Are we going pure capital growth or are we trying to generate some income? Mm. Because you're right, your choice of investments is going to be vastly different. Now, if you're on a top marginal tax rate, maybe you would go the pure growth because the capital gain ends up being – because you hold an investment for more than 12 months, capital gain gets halved. So if you're on the top marginal tax rate, that's more attractive, whereas if you're, if you're more in the sort of mid, middle of the scale, perhaps you're paying 30-odd percent, well then, if you're going Aussie shares, you're picking up franking credits, which are already thirty percent. So if you're in that kind of marginal tax bracket, you probably would favour the income-producing stocks, pick up your franking credit, uh, which likely nets out your tax, um, and then you know d- devote that income perhaps to your mortgage if you have one. So yeah, that's it's a it's a it's a really good question to ask, I think, and it's and it's a good illustration of you know, it depends very much on the individual circumstances of the person
2: doing the strategy. It it kind of swings back to like Mitch's question at the start. Like if someone did have um, only like, so, okay, me, for example, I'm currently quote unquote rent vesting. I'm renting here where I live and where I work. Awesome. And I've got investment properties that have equity. Now I can't go, all right, I'm going to go and get a loan against one of the properties and do debt recycling. Like that actually doesn't make any sense. Correct. But I could say, well, I've got equity. I can get that equity and then go and gear into shares. Hmm. And then I can go, like you said, you kind of cascade down, okay? I can get debt. I want to gear. I want to be aggressive with my wealth generation. And then the question is, okay, all the debt's tax deductible anyway. Do I want to go for gold and go hard or- yeah, it's just um, yeah, it's a fascinating thought when we when we really break it down, and it just speaks to that thing. Like, you know, everyone reads this stuff online, debt recycling, debt recycling, and I think because it sounds like you're you're being complex, and it sounds like you're sophisticated and all that. I think as humans, we we are interested in it because I want to be a bit complex. Yeah, I it's be like Shh, there's this little
0: secret, you know, no one else yeah. knows about it. You know, we'll yeah, let you in on was, the secret. Was, yeah.
2: It was like where a heap of, um, you know, tick fluences or whatever they call fin fluences or flint talkers. I don't even know. I'm such a boomer now, Paul. That like <laughs> when everyone started to learn the the words chess and DCA, and they were using those two words in every single bit of content because it it was like it sounds like. Oh well, no, it's just I'm investing every month, mm. like. Yeah, there's actually, there's no magic secrets, is there? <laughs> yeah, I know, so I know. But it, it, it definitely yeah. this, you, you're spot on. And
0: that's why I touched on sometimes it's overhyped. It's, it, exactly. Mm. There is a bit of that. And it's actually, yeah, it's kind of just, to me, it's just a bit of an add-on to an overall gearing strategy. It's not the
2: strategy. Mm. Yeah. Hey, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back right after this. Okay, we're back. Paul, just give us a bit of an update. Uh, your podcast, Financial Autonomy, what have you been working on? Who have you been talking to? What themes have you been digging into? Oh, gee, thanks, Glenn. Yeah, um, what have we been covering lately? We did do one on franking credits just
0: recently. Uh, I, I, I sort of, um, yeah, for, for the listeners that haven't come across us yet, we, we mix it up. So roughly every second episode I have a guest on and then in between it's just a single voice, me just... Um, Chatting on a topic, usually you know, ten or fifteen minutes, pretty short and sharp. Um, so we we mix those up. Um, yeah, so we've had some good interviews. Uh, what else have we covered recently? I'm just trying to think. You know, a bit about markets and how to kind of make the most of the current market turmoil. Thinking about rising interest rates and just what action you might like to take in in a world of rising Mm. interest rates. So yeah, generally just trying to reflect, I guess, what's going on in the world right now. Um, I guess how to yeah how to sort of hold the course through. Uh, I mean, it it feels like markets are turning, but we'll wait and see. Um, But uh, you know, it's certainly been challenging the last twelve months. So um, helping people kind of stay on track. Um, and, and generally, as you know, Glenn, I mean, our broad theme is about helping people gain choice. That's, that's, you know, it's not about being being a billionaire. It's it's just how can you organise your finances so you've you, you've got that choice. You've got options in life, which very much aligns with what what you guys are about as well, of course. Um, so yeah, always trying to think about different topics that, that 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 meshes with. You know, we try and have a bit of bit of property talk on there as well, because um, that's obviously an important piece of the puzzle too. So yeah, try and cover
2: the yeah. bases there. Yeah, awesome. Well, if you want another podcast that uh, doesn't suck like this one, you can listen to Paul's. He uh, he's more considered and more measured and more planned than what I am. Uh, so <laughs> I don't know. I don't know <laughs> so listen that. to I'm, Financial I'm, Autonomy.
0: Probably a lot less, polished, certainly a lot less polished than uh, than you're getting here. But hopefully, there's some useful content in there. We've been going a while now, about six years now. So there's a fair old content library for people to have a look at.
2: I love that. Megan and Kelly asked. Uh, Megan Kelly. Sounds like a famous person. Uh, Megan Reynolds and Kelly Ann. two questions. I'll read them out because I think we can kind of talk about them in the one answer. Megan, we are looking at setting this up at the moment. A couple of questions. How do we calculate the benefit of doing this strategy? Which lenders offer a simple method of debt recycling? How often should we invest? Uh, and then Kelly asks, are you best to engage a planner or an accountant or both, specifically to assist with debt recycling? I mean, if I could make the comment first, Paul, and then you can speak to the crunching of it, which lenders offer a simple method of debt recycling? Again, it's, it really is that you've just got to secure a separate mortgage that is against your house as an asset with your current mortgage broker or lender. And then you can take that debt to an advisor and get some advice, or then you can take that debt and invest. And I I didn't mention it before, Paul, but I think this is such an important underscoring thing of when you are buying your first home, when you are buying your next quote unquote 20 year, 10 year forever home, all that stuff. I mean, you've only got a forever home if you're the lady next door who's lived there 55 years, okay? Straight up. But it's about setting the right mortgage structure from day one. And- come hell or high water, I'll hang my hat on believing that an offset account is probably the most flexible, but it doesn't mean it's going to suit everyone. Uh, So that's kind of what I would say in terms of the lending um, and part two of the lending, it's not a margin loan. And we can talk about that later, but I just wanted to get that on the record, those points uh, before you talk to Megan and Kelly's. Yeah. Points. I mean, yeah. Great, great,
0: great points, Glenn. And and yeah, the, Megan's question there about, you know, which lenders, yeah, I, I couldn't answer that either. So I think you've, you've covered that off really well. Yeah. Megan asks about how do we calculate the benefits? So the way we would do it is we would, we would do modeling. I mean, that's, that's a lot of the work that we do for our clients. So we would just model scenarios and compare the scenarios. So you'd model out over probably 10 years, maybe 20, um, right. How, how does it look? Without a gearing strategy, how does it look if we borrow a hundred thousand and invest that? How does it look with two hundred thousand? And as I say, stress test that perhaps against a couple of different interest rate and return assumptions. Um, so that's that's the way that we would we would quantify that. And then she also asked, how often should we invest? Now, generally, people would you know, they obtain the 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 lump of money that they're getting from the bank. Generally, you would just put it in the market from day one um, because, you know, the money's available and you're trying to get into the market, you're trying to get that exposure. But you certainly could spread it out if you're a bit nervous. I mean, markets have been a bit bit rocky of the last 12 months, as we just touched on. So, you know, potentially you could go, all right, well, if I've got 100,000 to put into the market, you could do it as four lots of 25,000 months, of, you know, a month gap in between each just to get an average entry point, if you like. Um but, but you typically wouldn't spread it out much more than that. I mean, your whole your whole point is that you, you want to get your money invested and working. Um, if
2: it's sitting on the sidelines, it's not it's
0: not doing anything, you know?
2: Yeah. Can I just add to that, Paul? Like, and this is the whole thing. People uh, get the heebie-jeebies about when's the right time to buy because they're looking at the actual um, unit cost or the share price where you just want to get in the market to start having the entitlements of the dividend yield. Mm. That's right. There's the opportunity cost, isn't there, by sitting on the sidelines? Yep. The other funny thing is, I mean,
0: no, one ever dollar cost average into a property. You know, people buy a million dollar property <laughs> all the time, right? And they don't think about, oh, can I spread that out? No, you can't. Yeah. But anyway, for yeah. some reason with shares, you know, sometimes we overcomplicate these things, right? Um, well, but still, the options look, there. If, so, if it helps you yeah. sleep at night, go for it. But don't spread it out too much. I mean, I wouldn't be doing spreading it out over 12 months or something like that. You've just missed out on a whole lot of, at the very least, you've missed out on a whole lot of dividend income, uh, and you know, hopefully. Roughly four years out of five, capital growth as well. Um, And then Kelly, with her question, engage a planner or accountant. I mean, look... (laughs) talk in my book a little bit, but I would have thought a planner, the planner's the one that can do the modelling and that sort of stuff. Generally, the accountants are kind of after the fact, they're going to do your tax return yeah, and sort it out. Of the um, I mean, look, there are some great proactive accountants around, of course, but for the most part, um, as I say, accountants are, are doing your tax return at the end. I would have thought the planner's the one that, and certainly the accountant can't tell you how to invest the money. So I would have thought that, um, that the planner's the one you want to be chatting to.
2: You know, I was thinking like, Everyone gets, I call it property fever. And, you know, if you listen to John and Emily's podcast, My Millennial Property and love investing in properties and they they say like, oh, and I'm not having to gulp them. I'm just having to gulp them. But like- um, <laughs> <laughs> it's That's like all right, they won't listen. <laughs> yeah, it's this whole, oh, buy a property, you know, LMI is the cost of doing business. Oh, a bit of stamp duty oh, it's the cost of doing business. Get in there and get that property and get investing. So if I'm buying an investment property and I got 15 grand of costs that are the costs of doing business, why with this strategy, am I scared to spend four grand with a financial advisor to get some scenarios? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Great observation. Yep.
2: I mean, it's still an expense that is could be seen as the cost to do business. So mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and especially if it's if it's something that you haven't done before, and you know you're not too familiar, and yeah, the underlying investments, as we touched on earlier, do you focus on capital growth? Do you focus on income? Mm-hmm. Do you want Aussie shares so you pick up the franking credits? Do you want international? You know, just how are you going to put that portfolio together? Are you going to hold the investments direct or put them on a platform? Um, you know, th- th- there's certainly some nuances there that it'd be good to get right, and a little bit of handholding. Again, this is a, this is a higher risk. This is a more aggressive type strategy. Mm-hmm not a bad idea if if you're not familiar with doing that sort of stuff yourself to to call in an expert.
2: Yeah, and I will say guys like what sometimes you know, and I use the house fever as an example, sometimes we get so engaged into a process that we can sometimes forget and miss the basic laws. Like um I'll make an example up for the property. It will be a dumb example. Then I'll talk about in the investing. So you get house fever. Oh yeah, there's a house. It's a good price, but you've compromised on your own basic laws of, oh, I never really wanted to live on a main road, but yeah, I'll do it anyway. Or I never really wanted to live in this suburb, but I'm so emotionally invested. At least I'm getting in the market or some other violation of your normal emotional laws or whatever. Mm -hmm. When it comes to this debt recycling and gearing strategy, we can't lose sight of basic investment laws, diversification. Like I'm not borrowing $100,000 and investing that into just CBA shares or just the four banks. Like our basic laws of diversification still must, must, must exist. But isn't it interesting that- if you were buying an investment property though, it would all be
0: going <laughs> – going. you, you would be right. having no diversification, <laughs> right? And you're generally a much just larger all the transaction. <laughs> yeah. And yet it's uh, – that's it's a conversation I have with people. It, it's inter- the, the perception of risk. You know, so many people – I'm sure you'd come across it, Glenn. The perception is that an investment property is a lower risk proposition than buying an equivalent amount of shares when, yeah, from a diversification
2: perspective, the exact opposite is true. Yeah. Oh, man. You know what I'm going to do, Paul? We're going to make a note and we'll leave this in the podcast. Let's do an episode, the top 10 risks of buying investment properties. Jeez, that's going to be controversial. What's John going to say yeah. about that? Who cares? Let's do it. Rach, lock it in. <laughs> no, that'd be fun. Because I'm up for it. Yeah, same. And they can do one, the top 10 risks of owning shares on the property show yeah, in yeah, response. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, yeah. Head to head, to head battle. Uh, let's move on. Um, Sharon Koga, uh, do you have to turn off DRP to debt recycle? Well, I would think you would. Do you have to? That's- no. I mean,
0: the bank's well, not, not going to say you have to. But the point is, if you're going to de- recycle, you're trying to get down that non-deductible debt, your home line. Mm. Well, to do that, you need the cash flow from the investment to pay it down. So... It- if you leave on the DRP, you've got a gearing strategy. You've just got a gearing strategy. Right. It's not a debt recycling <laughs> strategy, yeah. And, and, and maybe that's a good strategy, you know, depending on the circumstances of the individual.
2: Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's not debt recycling if you're, yeah. if you're dividend reinvesting. This is also a great question. Uh, if doing so as a couple and by uh, Shargon, Sharon. Sharon? How do you pronounce that? Yeah, I
0: would say it's, it's a different spelling. But Sharon. it seems to me, Sharon, yeah. yeah.
2: Or Sharon. Sorry, we do apologise. If doing so as a couple... Does it matter whose name the shares are under? Ooh. Now, that's yeah, that's, that's a, a good question. One. The answer I would suggest
0: to that is the investment should line up with whatever the debt uh, ownership is. So if your home is in joint names, let's assume it's a couple, then mm. your mortgage is going to be in joint names. Therefore, when you do the investment loan, it's at least the starting point is going to be joint names. You could probably swing mm. that and one of the other person could be a guarantor um, but mm. speak to your mortgage broker. So generally as a starting point, it, however you, you structure your loan then you're going to have the investment married with that because otherwise mm. um, the income and the tax deductibility aren't going to line up, right? The person anyway,
2: let's let's not go too well, far, but, too far but, down but that rabbit a, hole. No, but, but this is a good point. Like if you're in a couple for example if the shares were just in your name and the mortgage was in the spouse's name only, you can't claim on your own tax interest in someone else's name. Exactly,
0: exactly. You need the two to marry up. Otherwise, yeah, you won't be able to claim the tax deduction because there isn't taxable income. Because that's a really good step back, actually, right? Why is the interest tax deductible in the first place? Well, it's tax deductible because the purpose of that debt has been to generate taxable income, both- per year and at some point capital gains down the road right so therefore yeah. the cost of that loan is a cost to generate that income and therefore it's tax deductible so if if the loan's in hubby's name but the investments are in the wife's name well then the hubby doesn't have any taxable income so his loan isn't tax deductible so you got to get them to line up so i think that's mm. it's maybe not the whole answer for Sharon but i think that's a pretty
2: fundamental starting point anyway and then the final question that they had, and I might leave it to the end. If planning to upgrade slash purchase a new PPOR in a year or two, will debt recycling complicate matters? So we'll just pause that there because I want to kind of finish with kind of that. Uh, Shantanu, what exit strategy after paying off your PPOR should you continue to leverage? Depends on your objectives.
0: Mm. So you yeah. would- you know, a lot of our clients, for instance, it's an objective around, I want to have the choice to retire at X age, 50, 55, 60, whatever works for you, 40. So I want to have that choice, right? That's that's often what we're looking at. So you would then, okay, well, do we need to gear to get there? And if the answer is yes, and you've got the capacity and all the other things that we've talked about, great, let's do a gearing strategy. Um, and, you know, maybe we increase that exposure if it's the case that you've paid off your, your home loan, your principal place of residence loan. Yeah. Um, but if we can run the numbers and show that, oh, actually, you don't need to do that, you know, with what you've got in super and, and various things that are happening, things that you've already done, you can achieve your objectives without gearing, well, you're not going to take on that risk mm. just for the fun of it.
2: Well, I mean, you know, the exit strategy, after paying off your PPOR. so we're assuming that there are two mortgages, one that is for the investment, and one that's uh, non-deductible debt. I think it's a fair. It probably leads into first Paul before it's before the non-deductibles flushed. Every couple of years, you may do a refinance and set up a separate split or increase the the loan that has or that is deductible.
0: Yeah, I've certainly seen that done.
2: Yep, because you want to, you know over time, enhance the strategy, if that makes sense. So, we are paying down our home and we know by paying down our home mortgage means that we're building equity effectively. That's right. So, if you've done this for three years straight and go, oh, we've just paid 100 grand over the last three years through dividend payments, through extra or whatever, just through our normal P&I, we've got another 100 grand of equity there. Well, do you go and set up a second mortgage
0: Mm.
2: and then rinse and repeat and- so, there's that. And again, that will come into the, um, the last question that I want to ask around complicating matters. But I mean, if it gets to the point where you've paid down all your deductible debt, well, then you've got a choice to make, right? Keep it as it is. I'm happy to carry this debt. Do you then just divert the dividends and the yield onto that debt? Mm-hmm. Or do you turn on dividend reinvestment and just keep it going forevermore? Or do you go- I'd never really loved debt. I'm now liquidating everything. Yep. And own, and liquidating what of what debt is outstanding. Or and keeping the equities. I can think of a
0: specific client example. I just emailed him this morning actually, and in their case they have got to that point. All right, it's time to buy a holiday house. You know, it's a lifestyle <sighs> a lifestyle option is the next option. So again, kinda of circles back to well, what are your objectives? What is it what is it that you want to do? And then the strategy <laughs> flows off that.
2: Here's my uh, retired financial advisor coming out in me. What about we still leave dividend reinvestment turned off and we make non concessional contributions to super each year with that money and claim that on tax? Well, non concessional, you can't claim on tax. No, sorry. I um, put it in as a, a non concessional, then elect to make it a personal concessional contribution oh, to, to make it a concessional. Well, I guess if you've got yes. room within the 27 and
0: K cap, you could do. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Perhaps. Or
2: you could <clears throat> take the view, we'll put it in as a, a, a personal non-concessional contribution
0: mm-hmm.
2: because we've already had our cap. Cause you've maxed out. Your and cap, just, yeah. and just with the objective of, we want as much money growing in a 15% tax environment, so when later we're in pension phase, we got more money at 0% tax. Would
0: depend a lot on your age, I reckon. Totally. A, a lot of the people we're, we're working with, you know, it's, it's trying to think about yeah, having the option of retiring at 50 is pretty common, 50, 55. Yeah, sure. In which case, you don't want to be parking too much in super that you can't access until you're at least 60, right? So yep. you, you might do that as you get close to 60, but yep. for most of the people that we work
2: with, I'd be pointing more to keeping it out of super just to, just to give yourself options. Yeah. And I think that was just more, you know, when I said I'm drawing on my old, like I'll just brain dump as many different things as possible. Yeah. 10 of the 12 might suck, but at least you've kind of started thinking of different strategies. So, And
0: it highlights the different options that are around, you know, and that's, yeah. And that's really, it's good to think about, isn't it? And and again, yeah. I think that's why, and, and, you know, I know it was in your book as well, Glenn, but, you know, that, that the goals piece and that objective piece and ensuring that that's, your strategies all flow from that and it's not just because mm. oh, you read a Reddit thread and there was, hey, this really cool strategy, debt recycling, we should do it. That, that, mm. That's not the starting point, right? It's, it's a strategy that you could use if it makes sense for you to achieve the objectives that you're chasing. Um, and, mm. and yeah, that's as you say. Then what do you do from there answering that question? What's next? Well, it depends. You know, Maybe it does make sense mm. to pump it into super exactly as you say, Glenn.
2: Yeah, Kieran Smith, um, are there any tips or uncommon risks for those that are sole traders in their own business that might want to utilise this strategy? Look, it's it's fair to say, Paul, in terms of um, the black and white of the strategy, tax deductibility and all that, your income is your income wherever you got it from. I think the risks for me would be um, still there being a sole trader. How can you guarantee that you'll always have income coming in the door? Yeah, and it's just whether the cost of money is going to be different. You know... Yeah,
0: how's the bank going to view it? It just depends on the scale of your Mm. operation. And, you know, if you've been a sole trader for years and you've Mm. got a really reliable business, then as you say, it's no different really to being an employee. But if you're a recent startup, it's a bit lumpy, that sort of stuff. The bank might not be so enthusiastic to lend you the money in the first place. And if you can get it, it might be expensive. So I would have thought Mm. access to to the funds is probably the key thing for a sole trader.
2: And just on that, I just want to really underscore that, you know, it isn't – a margin lending facility, like you're not going to Macquarie Bank and saying, I want a, a loan just for shares and they'll require a bit of a deposit or whatever. It's literally, I've got equity in my house. I can go to my bank, get approval for a second mortgage that I can service without any other income ideally. And then what you do with that is after the fact. There's no margin calls on this strategy. No, dead right. Yep, important point. And just, I haven't brought home the last question, but just one question, like in terms of the investments, if there was a someone in there, I don't know, they're 48 years old, got equity, got income, kids are well into primary school, high school and life's stable, blah, blah, blah. From your point of view, are you using a model portfolio of direct Australian equities? Are you using a, some type of imputation managed fund or high yield ETF? Like what do you generally do if you had your, um, hmm. if you could, if the planets align and you could do the perfect case, like, is it on platform? Is it directly in brokerage account? Yeah, I mean, ideally it'd be on platform on a model
0: portfolio because it's a lot yep. easier to manage, to adjust. We can look at it. We can we can just help people more, um, yeah. and you know consolidated reporting, all sorts of benefits like that. Yeah. But there's a portion of the population that is, been, sort of drilled into them that you know fee consciousness, and yet you have to get the lowest fee no matter what, and therefore they sort of object to. The, well, they don't see the value in a platform. Mm. Uh, and so that's fine if, if people want to, you know, we can always construct a portfolio just using ETFs and they can buy it through their, their low cost broker. Um, it just means that our ability to support them in the future is pretty limited. Mm. So, you know, but, but that's, that's what some people prefer, you know. So, yeah, ideally from our perspective in terms of being able to give the best service and the best, you know, handholding. Yeah, platform a model portfolio would be the way to go.
2: And I don't expect you to give away state secrets, but when you say model portfolio, are we saying a model portfolio of Australian equities of eight to 12 direct equities? No, no, they're, they're model portfolios of index funds. Sure, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah okay,
0: cool. Because yeah. philosophically, we we have a belief that index funds are the way to go, at least if not for yep. all your money, then for the bulk of it. So, yeah, so we use models that, that work off index
2: funds. Yeah. And then one step further, and it's, again, this is why I love just, you know, you talk for an hour and then you actually get to some bedrock of some, um, <laughs> some cool stuff. Um, would you be saying, like, if someone's risk profile is a 50-50, well, this strategy probably is not going to work? Yes, I would agree. This is a strategy
0: for an aggressive investor. Um, yeah. Yeah. Again, you're borrowing to invest. No matter what happens with the investment, that line has to be repaid, mm. and you know you're putting your house down the lo- on on the line of
2: security right mm. now because there's no point borrowing a hundred grand to have. 30% of it sitting in fixed interest oh, on the platform. Yes. Yeah, well, that, yeah,
0: that's the other point. That's right. So, so yeah. Yeah, that's if, kind of what I was getting If your risk profile well,
2: is, yeah. Is, is, yeah,
0: a 50-50 balance type person, then it's probably not the right strategy to begin with. But then, yes, you wouldn't mm. undertake a gearing strategy and then say, all right, yeah, I'm going to have some portion of that sitting in bonds or in a mm. term deposit or something because, mm. you, you know, you're paying 5% on your loan and earning 3%, you, you're guaranteeing yep. yourself a loss and there's no prospect for, yep. for capital growth. So, yeah, no, this is a strategy where you're going to go into growth assets its equities or, or yeah. property.
2: And I think the only other thing that I'd probably comment on and this is why this whole psychology piece is great and you know for me it's okay to pay a financial advisor ongoing if you're getting that value but like if we go back to that example where million dollar house, 500k existing loan, 300 grand of meat and you, and someone comes in like we got Uh, pre-approval and we've got the bank to set up 300 grand separate mortgage that we can keep and track that as the deductible interest payments. Paul, I'm good to go with my 300 grand. Then they do the risk profile and they're like, oh, we're actually pretty, you know, where it's 50-50. I think then the coaching comes in to say, look, your risk profile could not stomach this, but can we work towards investing $100,000 of that into 100% growth in equities and keeping that 200000 on on the mortgage and not redrawing that. Yeah. I think that's that's great advice, Glenn. Yeah. Great, great observation. Mm. I'd agree. So, I think, yeah, there's many ways to split a cat, but we're one minute over my allocated jump in the car t- time and drive to the dentist. But I just want to finish on this. When wouldn't you do a debt recycling strategy and I'll refresh while you think um, Shagan or Sharon's question if planning to upgrade or purchase a new house in a year or two will debt recycling overcomplicate matters so in answer to that second question probably yes yeah I don't
0: think I would do it in that scenario broadly yep. when would you not do it so one is about risk appetite which we've kind of covered yep uh, I <laughs> It would be interesting, and I'd kind of have to crunch the numbers, but I would think the higher interest rates go, yeah, there must be a point. If interest rates were at 10%, for instance, and you know that the shares are going to generate a yield of, of four, maybe five, depending on what options you go, mm. gee, you're going to have to get a lot of capital growth on that investment, even allowing for, all right, debt recycling, yeah, yeah, all good. Still, just just ignore that piece. Just as an underlying investment, does it make sense to borrow at extraordinarily mm. high interest rates? mm and then the only way that that adds up is to get very, very good capital growth. So yeah, and as I say, I'm just, I'm sort of thinking out loud on this, but there must be a point where mm. interest rates, are, the, the cost of money is too high to make the strategy work.
2: Yeah, because what can happen is if you've got to go on this hunt for yield, if you've got high borrowing costs, it could lead you to do dumber things if you're not under the care of an advisor. Yeah. And and generally, if you're chasing
0: high yield, that, that there's a reason that yield's high, right? That they've Mm. It, it, they've got to attract an investor by offering a high yield, either because they, they've got, well, generally, because they've got very low growth prospects, or maybe they're even in an industry that I don't know, fossil fuels producer or something like that, where you know the outlook is is pretty grim. So therefore, the yield is is good now, but it's not going to be mm. good five years from now, and there's probably not going to be any capital growth. You know, so that, that yeah. might not
2: lead to some good investment choices. I think another thing when you wouldn't do it if you can't cash out at least a hundred grand, just what are we doing here? Like-
0: If you don't have that sort of available in the case of an emergency- Yeah, usable equity.
2: Yeah. No, equity. like as in actual investable amount.
0: Oh, okay. Like, Otherwise you're too too small to sort of worry about the cost. Yeah, like, so what are stuff. we doing here? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, probably not going to have sufficient
2: impact on yeah. your
0: overall position, is it? No, good observation. Yeah.
2: I would also say if you can't service the debt without the income- don't do it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, which is interesting, isn't it? Because often with an investment property, that wouldn't be your your way of thinking no, about because things. They would use that, yeah. You know, and that would be. And I'm happy to be wrong. We both think,
0: yeah, thinking on the fly. But, but I, 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 I would be in your camp as well. I mean, at least with an investment property, the rent comes in pretty reliably every month. You know, you might have a vacancy for a month or two, but but it's pretty. But it, you know. If we're using equities, which is generally what we're talking about here, as we've touched on before, the return, the income's quite lumpy and really not very useful for paying off the loan. So yeah, yeah, good one. Yeah.
2: Hmm. I'll then probably finish my view. If your life hasn't, you know, if you think of that bell curve and you're starting your life and it's increasing and you get to this kind of peak of settlement, quote unquote, as in we're well established in our life. Mm, I've got my foundations in place. I've got my emergency fund. I'm not in consumer debt. I've got my spending plan. We've got our insurances in place. We've got a home that we are happy to be in. We don't plan to renovate next year. Like, I honestly believe this strategy is for those who are settled financially and stable financially or lifestyle or mm. goalsy, or something like that. Yeah. Because it has to sit outside the goal of we want to travel to Prague for three months. Yep. It just has to take care of itself, doesn't it? Like it has to sit outside the, well, We this is not our forever home. We're going to be here for two years and then we're going to – and sure, there's ways that can do it, but it just gets tricky if you've got to refinance – this loan, like you just, what are you doing? Yeah, like it's going to mess up your
0: borrowing capacity and your servicing capacity. And, yeah, no, I, yeah. I, I think that's a really good observation as well, Glenn, that, yeah, it's it's yeah. get get to the point where, yeah, you're settled, you're in your home, yeah, and, and even just from a career point of view, you know, that your income's mm. pretty stable, that your job security's solid. Um, yeah. Probably the other thing too I would suggest is ideally you've, you know, you've, you've been listening to a lot of my millennial podcasts and you, you've got yourself maybe you've done a bit of investing ideally and you've got some degree of comfort around investment market volatility I think it's it's probably a pretty big ask if you've never owned shares or you know owned any sort of investment that has share market type exposure. For your first go at it to be, you know what, I'm going to borrow a couple of hundred thousand against my house and and, and chuck it on the share market, that, that, that's bold, I'd suggest, right? It, yeah, it'd be much calm better. Calm Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if, if you'd had a bit of a dabble, you've, you've bought some ETFs or whatever, you've, oh, yeah, sometimes they go down, sometimes they go up. You know, just a bit of familiarity mm. before you go gearing strategy mm. and, you know, debt recycling as, as, a, as a,
2: a, a finger of that sort of
0: overall mm. strategy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm.
2: Well, we might leave it there, Paul. Thanks for that chat. I mean, I hope it's given everyone some uh, food for thought. Uh, I hope it's encouraged you. I certainly have thought a lot about it. And I will say, Paul, like it's the whole psychology thing. Like I've got lots of property. I've got lots of equities, but I don't have a direct carve out of debt. Like I don't directly gear into equities myself. Right. I just cash flow them. Mm, mm. Yep. Just it's just I don't know I just haven't because for me and I'll finish on this and you might have the same like so many times you'd have a client come in and want to take over the world financially and then you set up all these strategies in 10 minutes there's a oh no we actually need to do this now it's like well why did we bother doing all this stuff it's just cost you money
0: mm.
2: it's just cost money like that, that's all it's done and the same thing, it's like, when should you buy your first investment property? Well, when you got your kind of life set up, the amount of people that have run out and bought an investment property in the next street, and in two years' time, they've had to sell it because, oh no, we actually wanted to start a family now and we couldn't afford it in the end and couldn't cash flow it. So I think it's just more of a cautionary tale that you need to do things in the right order, slow down. If in doubt, just cash flow equities. Yep. <laughs>
0: Yep, and and the beautiful thing is with equities, you can do that. You know, it, uh, absolutely, you can search cert- all sorts of different ways that you can be putting five hundred or thousand bucks a month in, if you like, quite affordably without without taking on that extra um, that extra risk. Quite frankly, so and
2: and there you have it. That's point one of the top ten reasons not to buy property. You can't cash flow a property, so <laughs> look out for that episode in the coming weeks. I'll send you an invite, Paul, for a we record on a Wednesday, so maybe in a. Couple of weeks, we'll do a Wednesday again, Paul. You're on, Glenn. And we'll I love it. We'll do this, and then we'll we'll pass the ball to John and Emily, and they can do an episode. Top ten reasons not to buy shares. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They can try and compete, but you know we 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 know who's going to come right.
0: out on top, Glenn. There's no there's no question. But let's let's give him the opportunity anyway. I'm not allergic to money. I'll have property and shares, but I like having fun. <laughs> I hear you on uh, the same boat, but uh, yeah, no, let, 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 let's uh, let's let's make the argument for equities on we can, it. We can hit
2: it out of the park on that one. Love it. You can hear Paul on the Financial Autonomy podcast and grab a book by the same name. Paul Benson, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks very much for inviting me, Glenn. Always uh, great fun.